We have a rich tradition of pilgrimage in our American culture. We celebrate the history of our colonial heritage each Thanksgiving when we sit down to a holiday meal reminiscent of the meal shared by those plucky 17th century settlers in Plymouth, who braved an Atlantic crossing on the Mayflower only to face the severity of a New England winter. We know them as the pilgrims. But what made their trip to the New World a pilgrimage? We know that they were fleeing religious persecution in which their lives were in danger. But when Mary and Joseph fled to Egypt with the infant Jesus, nowhere in Matthew's gospel is this described as a pilgrimage. Perhaps the pilgrims of American history represent a notion that confuses the issue for us. So let's find out. A pilgrimage has some elements that are obvious. The traveler goes away from one place and journeys to another. This is a physical manifestation of the pilgrimage. Throughout the Middle Ages, devout Christians traveled to the Holy Land as an outward demonstration of their religious devotion. The point for a religious pilgrim was, and is, to travel to a place that has monuments or associations with events held sacred. Going to the Holy Land to visit sites described in the Gospels would fit this definition. Described by Marjorie Kemp in a 15th century memoir, this journey was expensive and fraught with physical danger. European travelers arrived in Venice where they contracted with licensed guides who assisted the pilgrims with purchasing the necessary food and clothing, negotiating contracts with ship's captains, and assuring that all necessary paperwork for setting off on the trip was filed with the office of the Doge, as Venice's elected leaders were called. Pilgrimage was a huge economic boon to Venice and it was heavily regulated. This would, of course, take much of the burden off of the devout individual traveling with very modest resources. But the trip was still a once-in-a-lifetime experience for most. Visible in their approved garb, the pilgrims stood out from the crowd at home and on the road. Kemp's biographer describes the pilgrim's outfit as a long gray robe with a hood, a broad-brimmed hat marked with a red cross, a small satchel for provisions, a water bottle, and a staff to lean on at rough places. In a crowd of strangers waiting to take passage to the Holy Land, the pilgrims would have found one another and would have been signs to those not on pilgrimage. Now, Abraham and Sarah, as described in Genesis, had no need to garb themselves differently to be identified as pilgrims during their travels. They would have stood out as strangers in the sparsely inhabited fertile crescent of antiquity, traveling in a large kinship group with servants and slaves and animals. They might have been accepted in some fashion as just another nomadic group moving seasonally from place to place. But the purpose of their travels was so very different. This was not the typical seasonal search for fresh fodder and plentiful water for their herds in an area familiar to them from previous migrations. This was a risky journey by divine behest to reach an unknown destination. So the first element of pilgrimage that seems to unite our Old Testament forebears with more contemporary faith journeys is the visible physical manifestation of leaving from a place that is safe and known to search out a place of unknown safety, but with some real connection to faith. 
The second link between what we read in scripture and what we experience as pilgrims is the faith-filled response to a divine call. As you've read in Genesis and as you've read in the commentary, Abraham's overwhelming faith in God propelled him to leave what was familiar and to take up the physical task of pilgrimage. It's that simple. God called and Abraham hit the road. Yet that act of leaving is so much more profound because scripture tells us that Abraham was doing more than wandering the desert in answer to God's call. He was fulfilling part of a bargain. God promises the aging and unfertile patriarch that he will have descendants, although scripture isn't clear on how that is to happen. In Genesis 12, verse two, the Lord is quoted saying, I will make of you a great nation and I will bless you. This statement is actually two different promises, but it takes faith to believe either one, immense faith. There are several ways that Abraham could become a great nation, and we find out about two of his options. First, he plans to name his steward, Eliezer, his heir. This would have been a legal status in which the steward would inherit his goods and his place in the family, but this wouldn't have fulfilled the Lord's later promise. The other is to have a child with Hagar, a servant. This child would have been Abraham's own offspring and would have fulfilled the Lord's promise in Genesis 15, verse four, your own issue shall be your heir. Abraham has actually been quite creative within the context of his time and place in trying to make God's promises become a reality. And now that we are certain that Abraham is capable of fathering children, the focus of providing offspring shifts to the elderly Sarah. Each time Abraham does something that makes the modern reader cringe, we need to remember that he is, after all, a man of his time. He is a very early monotheistic person. He's following the lead of an unseen, solitary God to whom he has vowed loyalty in a time and place where idols and polytheism were the norm. As author Bruce Filer notes with awe and italics in his book, Abraham, he doesn't believe in God. He believes God. But he's still guessing what this all means, trying to connect dots that are pretty far apart on the page of his life experience. God speaks directly to Abraham. And Abraham does what he thinks God asks by making some independent decisions famine in the Negev. He does not return to his familiar haunts, the land from which he set out, but instead remains on pilgrimage and goes to Egypt to sustain his family where he once again gets creative to preserve their lives. But does his creativity betray a lack of trust in God? Abraham is aware of a brutal custom in Egypt through which he might lose his life even as he leads his entourage away from the famine area. Because of Sarah's beauty, Abraham knows that Pharaoh will desire her for his own wife. But by custom, before Sarah can become Pharaoh's wife, she must first be widowed. Abraham doesn't like that alternative, so he proposes a deception, but one which could still cost him his life if it is discovered. Remember, Pharaoh does find out. But he also makes the connection between the plagues and Sarah's actual married status. This is the work 
of Abraham's God. And this Pharaoh is too smart to pick a fight with God. Abraham's attempted ruse has in no way freed him from the sacrifice and risk that his decision to follow God's commands requires of him. And yet Abraham prospers wherever he goes. This appears to be a mark of approval related to the second clause in the statement, I will make of you a great nation and I will bless you. He exits Egypt with his life and his wife and he adds to his wealth. Again, as you found in the text, this would be seen as a mark of God's favor. This increased wealth would be a tangible measure of the extent to which God favors his servant, Abraham. So we know that pilgrims leave what is familiar and go to places unknown or unfamiliar in a very physical sense. And we can see that the call to go forth is divine. The pilgrim must hear God's call and respond to that call no matter how risky the proposition. But that's not all Abraham experiences. Abraham grows in faith as he responds to God and his actions reflect this deepening faith. Self-circumcision, surgery on one's sons and all of one's male servants. What did Abraham say or do to persuade them to agree? According to scripture, all we know is that he was successful. But what of the women in his household? We have two pivotal characters, Sarah and Hagar, who are critical to the founding of the promised nation and who are part of the physical pilgrimage, but in very distinct ways. Hagar encounters the divine in God's messenger in Genesis 16, verses 6 through 14, and makes a decision to return to Sarah's service even though she is being treated abusively. Louis Epstein, a scholar of women's status in biblical time, notes that Hagar, once she has born Abraham a son, would likely have risen from just one rung above a female slave through four higher levels to nearly that of Sarah, Abraham's primary wife. Sarah, who gave Hagar to Abraham, should have been ready to make this mental shift of accepting Hagar's newly exalted status. We might assume that jealousy was involved, but Hagar's pregnancy was also a tremendous threat to Sarah, even though Sarah was the chief wife in charge of all of the women in Abraham's household. Having no children of her own, Sarah ran a tremendous risk of losing her home if Abraham died before her. Because Sarah would have come to Abraham with a dowry and a contract. Without providing Abraham with a male heir, Abraham's death would have voided any contractual means for Sarah's support. Unless someone in her father's household took her in, there would have been nowhere for Sarah to go. Once dismissed by Sarah with Abraham's approval, Hagar, an Egyptian, was a free woman. When she leaves with Abraham's child in her womb, he loses his offspring, and Sarah loses her opportunity to have a child via Hagar's pregnancy. Through Hagar's brief pilgrimage to the desert where she encounters the Lord's messenger, her behavior changes, and we can assume that there is also a change of heart, a spiritual shift in her willingness to return to the abuse under Sarah. There may have been a practical element in her decision as well. 
Where would she have gone? Alone and pregnant in the desert? Part of her spiritual pilgrimage might have been the soothing moment, alone and in contact with God, to resort her priorities and accept her status under Sarah. Accepting the authority of others is, of course, one way to accept the authority of God. But Hagar will more likely be trusting in God's promises concerning her son. And for those promises, she will endure anything. But now we're left with Sarah. She doesn't seem to have changed much, even though she's moving about the countryside with Abraham. She's well cared for in terms of material goods, and her status as chief wife is reinforced when Abraham returns Hagar to her power. Sarah seems to react with disbelief regardless of how much divine intervention occurs in Abraham's life. But how much of this did she actually know about? How could she engage in a spiritual pilgrimage from disbelief to belief if she wasn't getting the whole story? In fact, let's look at Abraham's encounters with the divine through Sarah's proximity. In Genesis 12, verse 1, God tells Abraham to go forth. He goes, and Sarah goes too. Abraham is told that the land will be given to his descendants, and he builds an altar in Genesis 12, verse 7. Sarah may not have been anywhere in the vicinity. They get to Egypt. Sarah must pose as Abraham's sister to preserve his life, and she is removed to Pharaoh's household. She is expelled with Abraham after the plagues hit. They get to the Negev, and Abraham separates from Lot. We know that Lot would have been subservient to Abraham and that the women of Lot's household would have been Sarah's ultimate responsibility. So, now the workforce and the communal goods are being divided into two ports, which reduces both her workforce and her resources. The Lord assures Abraham in Genesis 13, verse 16, that his descendants will be like dust of the earth. And Abraham erects another altar. Even Abraham has difficulty maintaining his composure in Genesis 17, verse 17, when the Lord reveals that Sarah will bear him a son in her old age. When Sarah laughs after overhearing the visitor proclaim that she will have a son, Genesis 18, verse 12, God rebukes Abraham. Sarah overhears this and seems to be part of the conversation for the first time only when she tells the visitor that she didn't really laugh. Sarah is moved to amusement in Genesis 21, verse 6, when she says God's gift of the baby in her advanced age gives her cause to laugh. Not only does she now have a son, a son who supersedes Hagar's child in the household hierarchy, but he will provide for her should Abraham die. Plus, the only reasonable explanation for his birth is miraculous. God is at work in her life, and she has proof of that work. But she is still unchanged in her attitude toward Hagar and Ishmael, who are now driven off into the wilderness, where they will come under the direct protection of God. Hagar is in direct communication with God's messenger in Genesis 21, verse 17, and she does as she's told. Ultimately, they prosper in some way. Will Sarah never get the message? 
We see Abraham as compliant to God's demands even when risking the lives of those around him. In our contemporary eyes, the sacrifice of Isaac is almost unforgivable. In his pilgrimage, his travel, from a polytheistic culture to a devoted monotheistic life, imagine the hardships this would have imposed upon his household. Had he sacrificed Isaac, if the Lord had demanded Isaac's life for any reason, what would those servants waiting for their return from the mountain have thought? What would this have done to Sarah, whose sole concern and purpose of being was tied to bearing a child? We'll never know because the next we hear of Sarah, she has died. But we do know that she remained with Abraham until her death and raised their son until he was at least able to undertake that journey to the mountaintop where he was bound and laid on the altar. We don't know what she made of the opportunity for pilgrimage, but we know that she must have contributed to Abraham's work as she ran the household and managed affairs that would free him to increase their wealth and follow God's directives. Abraham had the advantage of interacting directly with the Lord. Hagar was in contact directly with the messenger of the Lord. Sarah's only recorded contact with any divine messenger is in response to the visitor's announcement that she will bear a son. And then she lies. But perhaps like those of us who seek God's word in prayer and devotion to the welfare of those around us, her journey, her pilgrimage, was that much more difficult because she was not in direct contact with the Lord, that she had to work harder and make more mistakes to discover the path to salvation. Thank you.